0: I uh, was born on the, <laughs> on the heels of my sister's birth. We call it Irish twins because we're, our birthdays are only six weeks apart. My mother went in for a six-week checkup after my sister was born. So she my sister was still a babe in arms, wondering why she hadn't started her period. And the doctor said, well, it's because you're pregnant. And so growing up, my mother was a little miffed, burdened with all these little babies at once, and uh, she said she would say it years later that she never wanted any children, which is kind of hard to swallow when you're still a child. When she would say you were an accident, I didn't think of it as an adult. I t- as a child, I thought I was unwanted. I was the third born of four and um, from what I've read that's the invisible child. Part of being born early and in a family where there wasn't much attention I was sick a lot and I had pneumonia and was hospitalized five times before I was out of kindergarten. The first time I was just three months old, and I was in an oxygen tent and whisked off at one point by these nuns who were told that I was going to die and they didn't want this little soul to go to limbo. So I was baptized in the chapel, which made my wayward Protestant parents a little upset. They got over it. But what they didn't seem to get over was their own trauma— of having a child that was s- sick unto death. and so they treated me differently than they treated my siblings. kind of like you would like with kid gloves. and I I struggled against that idea I was at, growing up I was very active in sports and fearful of anyone, Seeing me as vulnerable or sickly, because what I had internalized from my experience was that that people treat you differently if they think you're broken. So I was pretty determined not to do that, to to succeed. I uh, grew up in Portland for the most part. My older brother was... Um, Moving to California and being in uh, the film and television industry, my sister got a job with the federal government, with the VA that led to our job with Social Security. When I was uh, in high school, I uh, fell in with uh, a group of, you would call them a band of Jesus freaks, there were people that gravitated toward the rebellious doctrine of Christ, and they were openly affectionate. And neither of those things I grew up with. My parents' attitude, having grown up during World War II and the affluence of post-war America, they had a uh, their sense of esteem was based on income and possessions neither one of them grew up in homes that were openly affectionate. They were just plain non-demonstrative. And one of the reasons I I was drawn toward this cult of young people was that they were openly affectionate. At 16, 17 years old, I just kind of gravitated toward this group and away from familial things. I was full on in in the beginning. I think I was enamored not simply by people that were demonstrative, but also by the music, because these were wayward musicians. There, It wasn't uh, near my God to thee or in the garden. I was like, yes, there was the organ player and did that. But the associate pastor would pull out a, an alto sax and playing, and it was pre-Kenny G, and very uh, enthralling. Human beings, to be whole, have to have a sense of their place in the universe, have to have a sense of awe about what they don't know and acceptance of who they are and and process that stuff and, and grow. It feels very empowering and serene to be okay with being ignorant about something. There's something unifying about, like, you know, we're all ignorant about stuff. To fulfill the law and the prophets, you need to understand God and love that and embrace your spirituality and love your neighbor to the same degree you're able to love yourself. Now, that's about balance, the proverbial three-legged stool, you know, I have compassion for others. I have a sense of self-worth. And I have an awe for how the universe is. I always had a sense of awe and and of dissatisfaction. And uh, I found a group that offered answers, and I realized that they really didn't have the answers. What they had was a kinship with this rebel they, that is called Jesus, people seem to, in this group, have a sense of self-deification if they had a leadership role. When someone says to you something like, God told me this for you, you're going to wonder, why isn't there any straight communication? Why are you so enlightened? And then, And then the so enlightened person turns out to be human, too. Humans don't like to be told what to do. They like having a leader. They like having other people they admire, but they don't want to be told what to do. I ended up marrying somebody in this group. Married at 19. And in quick succession over the next five years, I had four children. After my four children were born, my husband's addiction issues became more prevalent and, and his penchant for self-medicating became more important than anything of a spiritual nature. And so I wasn't responsible for, for a transition away from this body of believers. He made that transition because someone told him, God told me you need to do this. And he said, no, I'm not going there. My spouse was uh, an alcoholic and uh, with unresolved childhood abuse issues. And he didn't want to be told what to do, so counseling was kind of out of <laughs> the question. I went to um, Al Anon. We we're going to these weekly meetings, and, and it just seemed like people just came so bad their partner. Whoever it was that 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 was an alcoholic, they just came so they could whine about it. And I went like, "This is not helpful for me." I even went to the pastor's house uh, before my divorce uh, because I was looking to get some help. And um, I sat down with the pastor's wife. She told me about her rebellious teenager who was involved in drugs, and I'm like, "This doesn't help me." <laughs> <laughs> like I, um I, and it was nice that she trusted me with this information but i didn't get what i needed from it i put an awful lot of energy into it and then i just went you know it's not serving a purpose my spouse was extremely abusive in and out of that the religious environment because we left that group long before we parted ways when I found that I, I, how judgmental I was becoming and how my creativity was stifled, free thought was stifled. I just went, Ugh, I can't do this anymore. And I was associated with these folks for quite a while because I ran their nursery for four or five years. Just worked to create an environment for mothers. Uh, where they could enjoy the fellowship and camaraderie of each other and, you know, just have a cup of tea and sip and visit. And there was some conflict within the hierarchy of this church, and and they didn't think that that was worthwhile. I got this phone call out of the blue from one of the elders one time, and uh, he said, We think that you should be free to come in the sanctuary and worship, so we're discontinuing your job. like, (laughs) <laughs> came out of nowhere, and I went, "Oh, okay. So you're fired? I'm fired, right? Well, I guess you could put it that way. You know that I, I'm not. I'm not going there. I saw too much weird shit coming down. They were all really young adults when when it came together, and then they all partnered off and they had babies, and they were all very cute. But then they grew up and became teenagers." And all of a sudden, all that teenage angst kind of bled into <laughs> to the mania and the chaos that tore this union apart. Because guess what? Oh, we're they're really human. I don't think being human separates you from being spiritual, but apparently, some people do think that. Some people splintered off this direction, and some people off in another direction. There were individuals that wanted that same sense of control that Jim Jones had, the same kind of doctrine of the group that Amy Coney Barrett belonged to and supported. I understand that that the group that she's associated with also had their own school. And from what I know from the survivors of that school, that there was extreme abuse around it. So I'm glad that I left. I'm glad they fired me when they did, because... I wouldn't want to have uh, to deal with the guilt of being associated with a group where people were just wounded. At the tumultuous end of my marriage, um, I was in the Safeway parking lot. And I I won't say I heard a word because it wasn't audible, but I was impressed to look to the ground. And there was a penny. And then impressed that I needed to pick that up, which I did. I distinctly felt the universe telling me that if I paid attention to the small things, then the large ones would work out. And so every time I see a penny on the ground, I'm like, i got to pick that up. I really need to pay attention. And it just happened that the night after that event, this tumultuous thing happened in our house where my spouse kicked in the back door and, and was incoherent and, and out of his brain. And. Police were called, and it was really crazy, but they ended up taking him away. And that was the end of my marriage. I went, oh, I'm glad I picked that penny up. <laughs> I can find wisdom in a fortune cookie and go, this is a spiritual moment for me. Even if there was somebody in a warehouse typing all these things up and shoving them in the cookies. Um Because I think my universe is bigger than that. It's bigger than a doctrine. With every epiphany, it's like dreaming. Spirituality is not unlike dreaming. It's like, it's how we process our life and the information that we can't articulate. My history uh, of being sickly as a child left me never wanting to engage with anybody in a white coat because I felt I was going to be hurt. I was going to be, my voice was going to be marginalized. I hate the feeling of feeling constrained. I mean, doctors, nurses would come in every morning that I was in the hospital and hold me down while they gave me an injection. Even when I talk about it, I have this visceral feeling in my body of constraint, And when I uh, divorced, I was in my, I think I was about 40. And uh, I had a really severe depressive episode. And uh, I ended up being hospitalized. I was diagnosed uh, with initially chronic depression. It was, uh, it all was very dark and ominous and threatening, the confinement of it was, uh, it's frightening not to know what's going on with you. For me, being cognitively aware of stuff is important. Being able to articulate is important. And for me, uh, my symptom cluster around uh, depressive episodes, Mm. my... Executive functioning was so severely impaired, I couldn't talk and I couldn't think and I couldn't remember. Everyone that I wanted to care about, I couldn't express that. It was, felt like being buried alive. When people say depression is the equivalent of sadness, I'm like, no, it's not. It's more the equivalent of a black hole. Where all your energy is being sucked into it. I remember real clearly going into the doctor's office and waiting, like, went to the restroom and felt, oh, that tile looks so cool and inviting. And thought, maybe I'll just lay down on the tile floor in the bathroom, which seems to most people nonsensical. But to me, in that moment, this is what my system was calling out for it was like just need to rest just to just 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 to chill I guess or walking down the street and and thinking you know those people's lawn just really looks like a good place to lay down for a nap right now so when when people see street people that that, their mind is in a different place whether because of uh, something they've ingested or because of some trauma, they are not thinking like most folks. And I knew that I was not thinking like most folks. You know, if you look at the media and how they portray people that are having a man- mental health crisis, it's not with compassion. It is It fosters fear. And that definitely causes a division and a reluctance of people to get help when they need it. Because, gee, I don't want to be seen like I'm crazy. Uh, I've done a lot of um, soul-searching about suicidality over the last several years. Because I've had periods where I had suicidal thoughts. What I realize now is my perspective about that is different. It used to be, it was extremely frightening. And I was more frightened by the idea of losing control or being perceived as weak. The perception of people who die of suicide, it's painted as criminal, as sinful, and as a, uh, as a character flaw. But if you have a symptom of some other disease, like if you're hemorrhaging, people will stop the hemorrhaging. They don't think you're a bad person but if you have thoughts of self harm you're a bad person or there's something wrong with you or you're not as good as and as people internalize that social construct and become very fearful and the fear leads to guilt and guilt is also a symptom of depression and so it's this it's it's a cyclical thing and a lot of it has to do with society's perception of what suicide is when you feel things are, are beyond you, then you need to do something about it. That's what pain says. Pain is a signal that something needs to change. You know, you wouldn't tell somebody, oh, just get over yourself. You're really not hungry. Or, nah, you don't need to sleep. It's like, no, my system is screaming that I need something. And I just, I can't figure out what it is. I had what has been termed a psychotic break because what I decided to do was entertain the idea of suicidality to try to push through that fear because I just, I'm a contrarian, you know, I'm going to do something that's contrary and find out what happens. And in that moment, I remember vividly where I was, and I was like looking into a dark, cold fireplace. And in that moment, I felt this this tsunami of serenity wash over me. And what so-called experts would tell you was that that pre-suicidal period of time is often has an elation, but I don't think that elation came from Anything other than being free of that fear. And so, because I was feeling so much better and so excited, I was very open about what I planned to do. Because, of course, I had just had a psychotic break. My brain was in a different place and I wasn't thinking with the same units. Consequently, I ended up in the hospital and uh, I was on medication. And what I remember mostly about that was the judgment. My adult children came and they told me how awful I was for thinking about that. And someone came from the county, uh, a court liaison, to tell me how awful I that was. And But I couldn't get over this feeling of liberty, of elation, from breaking through that wall of fear. And it would be years before I would understand that it wasn't about that decision. It could have been anything else that I was afraid of because anytime I faced down my fears and gotten through the fear of it, whether it's stage fright or whatever, um, there is always this elation. It's victory. No one put it in those terms, but they put it in real, it was wrapped up in condemnation They reinforce the idea this is sick thinking and this is sinful thinking and this is wrong and you are broken It would be years before I could put the pieces together and realize that I chose to be broken in that moment And understand it and it got me past that fear that debilitating fear I don't embrace suicidality for myself I really think an understanding of the act of self-harm is merely a symptom. Thoughts of self-harm are misinterpreted. It's not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing. It's a thing. It's a symptom. It's information. But people are so afraid of the stigma around it, they don't share it. And because they don't share it, they don't get the help they need to resolve the underlying issues. So it's a social construct that is perpetrating the increase in suicide. What we really need to do is open a dialogue about it and say, oh, you're feeling like that? Well, let's look at what could be causing that issue. Any symptom to anything else, it is is a symptom. I have survived because... Of being able to reframe my experience and not being burdened by it. Blaming somebody else is disempowering you. To stay actively engaged is what empowers you. You have this moment. You can't control history, that only leads to regret. You can't control the future because it's not here yet, and that leads to anxiety. But mindfully, in the moment, you make the very most of it that you can. I mean, if you go back to Genesis, it is teaching Adam, you need to be accountable for your stuff. There are consequences to what you do. And one of the things that bothers me most about that story is that he then blames his wife. (laughs) He says, no, it wasn't me. It was this person. I'm like, wait a minute. You're responsible. It's you're still responsible for what you did. I think that the world needs contrarians. Uh, that the status quo needs to be questioning. It's like, is this still working for us? I think we're really much more in an age now of where questioning is okay, and empowering. And there are still folks, uh, and it doesn't have to do as much with age as geography, that, that think that questioning the status quo or something wrong with that. And I go, well, you know, you have a light in your house. You have electricity in your house because someone said, we don't like the dark. And We're questioning whether we should have to stay in the dark or move forward. And I think we should always move toward a light. And you can't do that unless you question why you're staying in the dark.